1: Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the way words and narratives shape the future. I'm Rich Gould, You can find me on Twitter at Rich G. Gould, and I'm joined by my co-host Jennifer Riggins, as always. You can find her on Twitter at JKRiggins, and in this week's episode, we're talking with Abadesi Osansade, who is the founder and CEO of Hustle Crew, an organization that is helping to build a more diverse, inclusive, and welcoming tech industry. We're going to to Abadesi a little bit about Hustle Crew as well as some of her other projects. Yeah, we think you'll enjoy the conversation. But to start off, thanks for joining us, Abadesi, It's great to have you on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I like the name of your podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So I gave you a little introduction, but yes. uh, I know there's a lot more to you than yes. just Hustle Crew. Great. Hustle Crew is. Um, Are there any you...
0: millennials with just one job these days? That's, I don't true.
1: Know. That's true. We, we need <laughs> multiple jobs, yeah. Yeah, could you sort of for anyone listening, just give yourself mm-hmm. kind of the introduction that yeah, you like you usually give yourself. Yeah. How do you Much sort feel. of feel?
0: Yeah. Yourself? So my name is Avedesi and all of my work focuses on making the tech industry more representative of the society it serves. I just think it's pretty ridiculous that I walk around a city like London where I live, go to the supermarket, see all kinds of people, then walk into a tech office and it's only white guys. And I'm like, hang on a minute, what's happening here? Um so I do this work in a number of ways. Uh I'm the founder and CEO of Hustle Crew, as you said. We're career community for the underrepresented in tech, but we leverage insight from our community to teach employers how to create more equitable organizations. And I'm trying to make a more equitable organization in my other job, Brandwatch. Uh, we're leading digital consumer intelligence company and there I am the VP of global community and belonging. So I'm trying to make our organization anti-racist and anti-oppression from the top down in every aspect of the business. But yeah, I do so many other things too. You know, for me, I just want to, make people more aware that tech is a place that they're welcome to be a part of, regardless of whether or not they can code. <laughs> and I also want individuals that use technology to be more aware of what's happening behind the scenes. So I've got my podcast Techish, I wrote a book to encourage more women to get into tech, I scout for eight Adventures, I'm an angel investor, I'm just trying to do bits on my, you know, one way, one way journey to the end of mortality, try to get in as much as I can.
1: So you're you're doing so many different things, but kind of where, where did you kind of come from in terms of coming into tech like what what was your first steps into the industry
0: my first steps into tech so I studied social sciences I was an economist by training shout out economics Um, and my first tech job was at a company called Groupon so this is about 10 years ago I don't know if you guys remember Groupon deals Um, but I was just really lucky to join the company about one year before the IPO and that gave me quite an idealistic I guess story around tech. I just thought every startup you joined ended up being a unicorn. Uh, (laughs) I remember like our first office Christmas party, we hired out the whole of Village Underground Club and we had like aero aero acrobatics and a casino set up. But yeah, that for me was a real golden ticket just because of the experience. I became a manager at 24. It's kind of crazy. I was like launching new operational processes, scaling a team at a very young age. I feel like you can't really do that in any other industry other than tech. I don't think anyone would let you. Like, I don't think you can like walk into a law firm and be like, yo, give me the top clients now. Um, But yeah, that really for me was no going back, like no going back to any other type of full time job where I have to like wear formal clothes or, you know, speak in a language that connects with whatever. Like I can just be myself. And that's sort of what I'm still trying to do. I think I realized as I get older that, yes, I felt more liberated than I had in other types of jobs, but there was still so much work for tech to do. Like that person of myself that I thought was my whole self was actually not my whole self. It was like the part of my whole self I thought was okay to bring into tech. Um, And now I'm trying to be on a mission where everyone can be their whole selves at work, regardless of who they are, and be equally productive and equally supported. These
2: are great goals in your history and all your your eggs in different baskets and everything sounds great, but it also sounds like everything you've done is a real recipe for your own burnout.
0: And especially
2: <laughs> yeah. when things are so close to home and you're working on things that are so important to you. Yeah. How do you balance that? Like if you bring your whole life to work, which is obviously the ideal, how are you finding balance or burnout? How do you deal with burnout?
0: Yeah, it's interesting.
2: A drug is burnout?
0: <laughs> It's interesting because... I think I'm like super critical of this version of capitalism and like this version of productivity and I think one of the things that I'm always trying to do is like challenge the narratives that I absorb from the media and that I absorb even from thought leaders who I respect and admire about what hard work looks like and what good work looks like and I think as I get older I become more comfortable saying no and I become more comfortable you know basically being disliked even, you know, I'm not always going to be the person that can help you. I'm not always going to be the person that can jump on a call with you or like do a quick catch up with you, or you can pick my brains, God forbid. Um, You know, I'm just getting more and more comfortable with working, not all the time, <laughs> working enough to get by, saying no, and and asking for help. But the identity dimension of this work is Something that I cannot escape, I cannot avoid. Someone recently asked me, Oh, you know, I sometimes think that the experiences that I'm facing in tech are to do with my identity, but I also don't want to always think that. And a part of me kind of thinks, Well, I can't escape that. And I've made my peace with it. I've made my truth with it. You know, for those of us who can see, you can see that I am a Black and Asian woman. And there's no way you can pretend that's not impacting your perception of me and possibly your response and reaction to me. And I think that's probably the harder part of working in the space of increasing representation, increasing belonging. Your identity drives your work. And therefore, when your work is attacked, you are attacked. And that's something that I'm honestly still working on.
2: I guess there's the argument that should it be your work? I'm glad you're doing this work. We are grateful you're doing it. But Is it should it be your job because you did not create the problem or but also I just noticed one word you keep using you keep choosing and since we're about words and text Mm. storytelling I have to ask about the word uh, belonging you seem to be using that instead of inclusion and I found that very interesting if I wanted to talk about that.
0: Yeah. So I can't remember the first part of your question because you kind (laughs) of changed it up a bit at the end. But there's this analogy that came up a while back. I feel bad that I can't remember who said it, but it's not me. Um, Someone much more intelligent and more experienced, I think. And they said that diversity is like inviting everyone to the party and inclusion is actually inviting them to dance, you know, pulling them off the sofa and getting them to jam with you. But I actually think belonging is kind of like handing over the phone and letting them pick the next track and letting them really have an impact on the space and the energy. And in a way, language is one of our biggest enemies in this work because people take these words, kind of like what Wittgenstein used to say around people like taking words on vacation. And suddenly it's like, I'm using this word in a way that you didn't even know this word meant this thing. And that happens a lot in, in in this work too. And I see the word belonging probably reaching its expiry date in the next <laughs> couple of years or so. But what it means to me now is that one level up from inclusion where you're not just participating, you have equitable authority and power in the room to shape it.
2: Yeah, and words do matter. And just to paraphrase, quote, my friend Daniel Admin, who also works in the space, like it's kind of a ridiculous thing that Black Lives Matter is a controversial statement. It's like the lowest bar, they matter. Yeah. It's not even anything of like saying they're valued or of raising anybody. It's like basic human dignity that this this group of people matters and it's still controversial. So yeah, yes. definitely. But when word.
0: you fail to understand your privilege, and you fail to understand structural oppression, then other people just trying to live will feel like an attack. You know, there's a lot of really interesting work happening around white privilege, white fragility. And I just remember the question that you asked me, which I forgot, which is, should I be the person doing the work? I mean, of course not. Do you, let's say in a war, in a battle, send in the troops with the weakest battalion and and the weakest weapons and the weakest authority? No, you send the people with the most power to drive change, to try and win that battle for you. But the reason why people from underrepresented groups and marginalized groups are stepping up to do this work in the absence of privilege and power that people in dominant groups have is because people in dominant groups ain't doing the work. Mm -hmm. Men didn't fight for women to vote women fought for, the, you know, the end of that. And in a similar kind of way, slavery, how did slavery end? Like, you know, there were so many revolts before. before the people who actually put the shackles on were finally like, okay, 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 we give up. So this is unfortunately in this version of reality and humanity, how things work. The people with power maintain the systems and the people abused by the systems fight and fight and fight and fight until they can change it.
2: But as Kim Creighton says, like Black women are the soul of America are the moral compass of America, of the UK, of the world, but it's just incredibly exhausting work. So is part of your job then, um, especially, I guess, more speaking about brand watch, where you're part of a more traditional tech environment, how do you get other people on board, like people that look like Rich and I, white people, how do you get... So you're not doing all the work. How do you do that?
0: It's a journey. Uh, I'm also learning. I'm in a newly created role in an industry that's very, ironically, resistant to innovation in the space of equity. (laughs) We're happy to conquer space and lab grow some meat. We'll do anything but treat women, people of color, gay people, Muslims and people with disabilities like we treat rich white men that that is beyond the stretch of our our imagination uh, for the majority of people in the tech industry. So I have to be creative, and I have to be experimental. And I have to adapt to what's unfolding around me you know i as much as possible try to leverage data so i look at what our surveys are telling us i look at the diversity stats i look at the inclusion surveys i pull out the most prominent issues that people want to see change in i put together some initiatives find the stakeholders who have the most to gain from these initiatives being successful bring them into a project run a little kind of sprint kind of test come to the end of that see if the impact that we made is what we had expected tweak iterate move on again I'm basically applying the lean startup model to a bunch of different mini things across my belonging roadmap, and one of the things that's been most effective, again, you know, just analogous to this idea of building products, launching products, is having a core team within this organization of 500-ish people, having a core team of folks who play all of the roles that you need. You know, I can be the product owner and make all of the initiatives happen, but then I need like the influencers, like across engineering and all the other departments, who are going to be the folks to like you know shout about it from the rooftops and then i need you know the folks on the ground my ux ui people like the in the trenches telling me whether they're actually seeing the impact of changes to the recruitment process and changes to how we do interviews and then i'm also having that feedback loop externally right because i'm doing so much work on our employer brand and all these other stakeholders in our like external community so all of these individuals who are aligned with the mission are the people i focus most on as opposed to the people who are maybe like a few steps behind on the journey, still doing some of their own internal work, not quite ready to buy into why this is important, why this is a priority for now. So that's been the most effective way for me to really get people on board, work with the people who already are engaged and have something to gain, form a little unit of action around that and move forward together. And in terms
1: of like doing this work, so say at Brandwatch, was that something that did you have to sort of fight hard to do this sort of thing or were people always on board did you always have the kind of space to do this sort of thing
0: Mm. So I think one of the things that I'm really, really fortunate about is that I I have joined a genuinely open-minded, progressive company that's so passionate about doing the best for its customers and its employees that they have really done the work of just leaning into my domain expertise. You know, I was headhunted for this role having worked with Brandwatch. You know, Brandwatch have had an ongoing partnership with Hustle Crew and You know, you can talk to our CEO, Giles, about this, you can talk to, you know, most of the folks on the global leadership team, and they'll tell you that this has been work that they've wanted to do for the last few years, like, honestly, for a while, but they just didn't know how to execute on that plan. Should it be something that existing leaders take ownership of and try and carve out space and time for? Should it be something that, yeah, you know, someone in the people team who already had a role around either recruitment or culture management, any of those things, could own. It was really the events of 2020 from the pandemic and how that impacted everyone, how many women were affected leaving the workforce, Black Lives Matter, all of these sorts of things. The US election. Things just came to this point where our CEO, as well as the rest of the leadership team, as well as the rest of the organization felt there should just be an executive leadership role, someone with that domain expertise who can guide us. That's what we need. It's, it's now or never to just start experimenting and see if we can create this position and see if we can make impact. So really from day one, I entered a, a team that was ready to be challenged and ready to embrace the discomfort. And this is one of my metrics of success, really our ability to hold a space of discomfort and challenge each other in a really healthy way and in an equitable way, you know, where there's a balance of opinion and a balance of voices. And we're working towards reaching a resolution or reaching a plan. And I feel very, very fortunate and very grateful that I have such a supportive team. Don't get me wrong. There have been like moments where I'm like, holy moly, what have I signed up for? But that's where vulnerability is so important. Whenever that's happened, I've just been super honest with my boss or super honest with CEO and that's when they've kind of changed tact, changed approach or just like rallied behind me to support me. So, yeah, I do honestly feel super lucky.
2: You just said metrics of success to hold on this, to be able to handle this discomfort. Can you yes. talk more about because so much of our the whole audience of buy for tech storytellers and community builders is that it's a hard thing to measure. And I think this is obviously diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging are hard things to measure. So please do share. Yeah.
0: So I don't actually think it's hard to measure, but that's because I'm immersed in this stuff all the time. So I'll just give you an example. Like how many times on any given day do you mention your race? That's a question I'm asking you. Zero.
2: I do a lot now. I think Rich would say (laughs) I do a lot.
0: Um, My I mention it a lot. Yeah. So but, Richard, you say uh, zero. And let I'd me come say to zero, you. Yeah. <laughs> let me come to you. How do you feel when I ask you to talk about being white?
1: Um, I guess I mean, I guess there's an element of discomfort. Like not yeah. kind of massive, but there's a kind of yeah. not even discomfort, maybe like a kind of confusion about yeah. how do you like what can you say? Like that yeah. m- more more that sort of thing really, rather than kind of yeah. discomfort. More like there's not really any sort of or it doesn't feel like there's any kind of markers of identity that you can really latch on to or if you yeah. did that it would then become if you did do that then it's it's sort of problematic in itself I think so it's, so
0: it's problematic yeah, it is, yeah so so is but, so what would you say maybe stops you from mentioning your race more
1: I think part of it is there is it doesn't you don't feel like there's a need to um mm-hmm. in a way there's not that You'd, I mean, it, it, you know, it's that kind of it sort of feels like it's the default kind of mm, thing, doesn't it? Yeah. So you, it's more that sense of it's not visible. It's not almost visible to you, I guess. And, and maybe it's not visible to other people. There's no like white man. That's a kind of it's a very sort of blank, um, neutral thing or, or it feels like that. Right. If that makes sense. So, yeah. so kind of talking about it becomes quite OK, well, where do you start? And you sort of. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's difficult.
0: Yeah. So so mentions of race mentions of identity, and all the intersectional elements within that class, our sexual orientation, uh, our level of education, whether or not we are neurodiverse, all of these identifiers, these elements of our lived experience impact the way we move through the world, they impact the way we work, they impact the way we interact with our teams, they impact our productivity, our ability to process information, our ability to execute on the work we've been assigned. When we're not talking about these things, we're not creating a space for people to share the challenges that come with those things or the benefits that come with those things. Most people will tell you they don't feel comfortable bringing that up. I don't want to tell my boss it takes me a bit longer to finish that presentation. I don't want to interrupt the Zoom call to tell people to speak a bit slower because I need a bit more time. That's the discomfort that I want people to lean into because unless people are signposting and unless people are challenging the norms and even to your point, like challenging this idea that you're the default, nothing is really going to change. We're not going to create more habits that are equitable, new habits to replace the current ones. And I actually see things like mentions of identity, as a metric of success, because when we're mentioning our identity more, we're leaning into the discomfort that comes with that admission and we're volunteering information that helps the people around us understand us better and support us better and create workflows and ways of working that are more equitable to everyone. So. I do think that when people are really, really willing to kind of just put a bit of a product lens on and unpack the challenges around diversity, inclusion, belonging within their team, actually success metrics become very simple to identify, very easy to identify, and you you advance them right? So once people are getting it, like, okay, yeah, I get it. I share my lived experience. I create that trust, that safety. I promote it. I challenge it when people aren't supporting me. We're doing that now. Then you level up. Okay. This metric is no longer useful for us because we've created these habits. We've created these norms. We've shifted the norms. What are the new metrics that we need? So that's sort of how I see it. And there are so many other approaches, you know, in a way I sometimes see community and, and belonging and inclusion work like part philosophical as well as scientific, because actually you can take different approaches and they probably all can be successful. So for me, it's like just through, through my, through the philosophy of my values and my experiences plus the product knowledge I have, I've created this framework, I've created this playbook, but someone with a different lived experience and a different value set might have their own philosophy around this and therefore have their own approach to developing that good product, that inclusive culture product. You know what I mean? And we could both be successful. We could both have super representative teams that, that retain and promote underrepresented talent.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially on, I think, you know, you sort of say something like metrics and you sort of think the same way or, or like frameworks. But I think thinking about frameworks as a sort of a tool that you create that people have sort of agency in, you know, creating it themselves. And, you know, maybe that's things that teams can do together as a sort of way of involving people, making the conversation more democratic and open. So yeah, Yeah. I I think that's a really good point. Um, And I think that's
0: the key as well. I just wanted to add to that. People always want to outsource diversity and inclusion work which is kind of crazy because like the blockers to diversity and inclusion are you like you are the blocker your team is a blocker like if you want to know why there aren't more i don't know single moms on your team or like hijabis on your team or deaf people on your team look around you because you are all the people that represent the brand that participate in recruitment that refer candidates like someone outside can't really come in and create a lasting impactful change they can they can spark a conversation but they're not going to rewire your neurons and and change your behavior you all need to hold each other accountable to changing your behavior and i think this is a narrative that just doesn't get enough airtime in tech and i think it's because it makes people feel uncomfortable again like no one wants to feel like part of the problem, right? That is what makes people feel guilty and sad and all of these things. And it's kind of like, okay, well, I don't know, do some journaling, meditate, get counseling, like get over it because the world's changing. So you're either on the bus or or not on the bus, but get on the bus. You know, there's some cool things on the horizon that we can all, all benefit from. So yeah, definitely see this as collaborative and create A space for people to share their fears. Because what we also don't give enough airtime to is the fact that there are a lot of people that just don't really want tech to look any different. The idea of a tech industry that looks different is kind of scary to them. It's intimidating to them. There are a lot of people that don't like me and they don't like the work that I do. And they've made it very, very clear in many, many ways. And there are people like that in every tech team and every company. And if they don't get airtime to share why, they're just going to be secretly sabotaging everything you do. Yeah,
1: I think that's a really good point as well. And I think, I think in a way that this kind of work sort of, it does kind of challenge that kind of logic of efficiency and speed in a way. Part of the reason that privilege becomes entrenched is because, I mean, partly sort of personal sort of ideologies and things like that, but also because it's sort of, it's almost justified by this kind of, uh, oh, we need to be fast or we need a kind of culture that's aligned. And it's kind of, it's not, it's sort of getting people out of that mindset of, you know, everyone should be the same so we can all work towards the same thing. It's, It's kind of shifting that towards more sort of conflict and things or sort of not necessarily conflict, but kind of more about, collaboration and uh, sort of seeing kind of differences as a, as a sort of creative yeah. process, I guess.
0: And also, how do we cherry pick what needs to make sense and what needs to be unanimously justified and agreed upon and what doesn't, right? Because in other parts of the business, people can just move forward with an idea, you know, you, you move fast and break things, as Zuck said at Facebook. But it seems like there's always an excuse for why things can't be more representative, inclusive, or diverse. What's up with that? You know, like we can, we can move fast and break things, but when it comes to, oh, let's move fast and break things with this diversity jobs board or with this speaker talking about HIV or blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh no, 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 no. hang on now. Hang on, hang on. Give me the business case. Give me the evidence. Give me the like global unanimous consensus. And it's like, we need to stop normalizing the the resistance and actually kind of challenge it and kind of just be like, hmm, you know what, I'm actually interpreting this as a bit of resistance. Is there, you know, is there a reason you don't want us to move part of this? Like we just need to kind of find the language that helps us call it out in a way that opens up a conversation and helps us unpack it and get to the root of the problem.
2: What happens when it's the government saying that? To timestamp this episode to give context, today is April 8th. And I Ooh. believe last week the UK government declared that while they should not use acronym BAME, which we could talk do a whole other episode on acronyms. And but other than that, the UK is one of the least racist countries. I'm sorry. It's hard to say without laughing. I believe the least racist country in the world and the UK does not have a racism problem using the lens of your work and in systems that are predominantly white affluent male, which I think the UK government is a fine example of what's that, what happens when that is how, what could have been done differently in this situation to allow that not to have been the ridiculous outcome of the study that the UK just underwent. They they had a racism study it's for people that are international or did not read this news. And the UK says, well, yeah, we shouldn't use BAME, but which is, I never use acronyms, but
0: uh, it's, I mean it's often said BAME as BAME, yeah, black Bames and minority. Ethnic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically it, 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 yeah, white people get their own label and everyone else gets bundled into this catch all. I but, don't really think anyone oppressed by society was surprised by that. <laughs> I wasn't surprised by that. Like <laughs> uh, so I didn't like I I didn't think they were gonna say things are racist. I'm working in an industry where the majority of people don't think there's a problem. You know, the majority of people in tech think tech is fine the way it is. This has always been the case as long as I've been around. This has been the case as long as I've run my own company. I remember fundraising talking about this idea and people being like no company is going to invest in something that's only for women how are the men going to feel no one's going to invest in us in a community that's only for people of color how are the white people going to feel you know the, those were the responses i got from investors now of course on a macro level the conversation has shifted there's a consciousness around identity and justice that just didn't exist when i started doing this work but The government can literally say anything. It's not going to change my mission. It's not going to change what I'm doing. And it's not going to change the lived experiences of the people in my community that I'm trying to optimize for. So I don't really think, like, it, the question you're asking is almost like, hey, how could we stop people in positions of power from using their power to further entrench their power? If I had the mm. answer to that, I'd literally start a new universe where I am the ruler and l- do everything I want. So yeah, that's a question for another civilization to solve, maybe in a few millennia. I'll stay with that it.
2: Okay, so we'll stay on the tech industry and just ignore <laughs> what's happening the the wizard behind the curtain.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm just talking about like patterns, right? I'm talking about patterns. I'm talking about patterns of power. And you're asking, what can I as an individual do? I mean, okay, yeah, sure. Get on and vote. Vote out this government. I recently became a British citizen and I voted in the last election. I did not vote for this government, but I did my very darn bestest to topple them. And I think, you know... Let's focus on London because while the government has said there isn't racism, London, the largest tech hub in the UK, is very much aware of that. And we have a mayor right now, Sadiq Khan, who has literally spent millions of pounds on programs designed to help 18 to 24-year-olds from underrepresented backgrounds, people of color, working class people, access tech opportunities. Hustle Crew has been fortunate to participate in some of these programs. We've literally helped dozens and dozens of young people launch their businesses, access 5K grants to keep moving forward. These are folks who are now participating In other accelerator programs, raising funding. And we've helped dozens and dozens of other young people from underrepresented backgrounds land internships at companies like Depop, full time jobs at companies like Amazon. It doesn't really matter what's happening at number 10, (laughs) because the work is being done at a grassroots level, on the ground, local council, local government. And that's really how change happens. You know, there's the media and the narrative, and then there's reality. And I'm not really interested in in stories as far as the stories that help me create the change I want and challenging the stories that do not serve my mission. That that's, that's what I'm interested in. So the story of the government, right now that doesn't serve my mission. I'm just not giving it any attention. It doesn't even serve my mission to challenge it because that's just energy away from stuff that's actually helping real life people.
2: Choose the stories you tell, choose the stories you respond to. We haven't even discussed that concept on the show before, but...
1: There's so much
0: power in that.
1: Yeah, and I think when, you know, you're talking about burnout, I think that's, it's kind of, you know, there's so much stuff. You know, and a lot of it bad stuff, but spending time talking about it and being distracted by it is can contribute to that kind of burnout, I guess, and, and kind of get you there. Um, I wanted to uh move on to Hustle Crew. You mentioned it just now, but could you sort of explain for anyone listening, you know, what what is it and also why does it exist or where did it sort of come from initially? Yeah.
0: So think of like the last time something bad happened to you at work or the last time you left a job, you left a company. Um, if you're anything like me, you probably started trying to find all the reasons why it was your fault. (laughs) And that's 100% what happened to me a few years ago when I quit a super toxic startup. I mean, it wasn't toxic to everyone that stayed, but it was toxic to me. You know, people were doing things that in their view were harmless and fun and banter, like touching my hair without my permission, Instagram stalking women I was bringing into interview and saying how they want to go on a date with them, sharing bikini pics, like super inappropriate things that made me feel really, really uncomfortable. And um, I did my best to show why that wasn't cool. I spoke to the guys on my team in London. I spoke to the co-founders in San Francisco. It was made very clear to me that this was my problem because no one else kept talking about it, right? They're like, well, it seems to be something that you have an issue with. And I felt so isolated and so bullied and alone. You know, it really got to the point where literally like no one would talk to me. No one would invite me for lunch. I was like this pariah just for trying to be me that I left. And tech is a very small world in some ways. You know, people wanted to know why I left. And I'd speak quite frankly about the issue. And people that I spoke to also thought that if I really cared about being a team player, I would have stayed, or I would have found a way to work it out. They kind of felt that, you know, the cost of my humanity was clearly not high enough for me to step away from that opportunity and I I was super tempted to leave tech. I'm not going to lie. Like I kind of just thought, "Wow, maybe I just need to like go work where there's like black women. I don't know, should I be a nurse? Should I be a teacher? Where are the black women? Let me be with my people." And then I just started to realize, wait, this is what community is all about, isn't it? This is, this is why you try to find people with shared experiences and shared passions and shared ambitions so that you don't from one bad experience, walk away from your dreams and walk away from your goals, find refuge with people who can tell you, no, you're not at fault. And that's really like what happened with Hustle Crew. I was in a real kind of soul searching space in my life. I was also like, I think like 29 and like, you know, there's such a big thing around turning 30. (laughs) in our version of reality and like all this kind of stuff. So I was just really kind of thinking about who I wanted to be in my career and in my life and in this world. And I wondered if there were other women in tech who also felt a bit at a crossroads. Like I have so much more to give if only someone would let me, if only someone would friggin' hear me or believe me and give me that opportunity. And the very first thing that was a Hustle Crew event before Hustle Crew had a name or a website or anything was literally a careers workshop. Very selfishly, I wanted to bring people together and like basically read you our CVs and cover letters and LinkedIn profiles. But it very quickly almost became this weird, like cathartic group counseling session where we all shared why we were actually looking for a new opportunity. And the, and the uniting thread was that feeling of exclusion, that, that moment of not being supported as a woman, as a woman of color. And that's when that penny dropped: that underrepresented individuals face unique challenges that people from the dominant groups creating culture and making the decisions have zero visibility over. And sometimes they're even creating that issue and not realizing it because there's no safe space for someone to to vocalize that. And once I realized that, okay, there's a common thread in this room of us, does that common thread extend? I started posting on social media that resonated. I literally like put out a little message, come meet at the South bank this Saturday at 12, like literally 20 plus people showed up and then it became a monthly thing. And then we had a website and then we went online and five years later, we're still here.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, that's awesome. And so I was also interested in kind of what more, so we've talked a bit about the sort of broad sort of reasons why it sort of exists, but like what's, could you sort of talk about the kind of work it does sort of at the moment? So I'm particularly interested in some of the workshops and things like that. that What have you been doing, I guess, over the last year or two?
0: Yeah. So one of the things I'm obsessed with is tools and frameworks around inclusion, because we have tools and frameworks for everything that we do, whether it's like account management, customer success, content creation, product development, engineering, like we, we have these shared tools and shared language to help us reach a common goal. But I just realized that when it comes to diversity and inclusion, we still don't really have that. No one's really made that. Playbook and made that set of tools and frameworks. So that's where Hustle Crew's work focuses specifically with regards to businesses. We're trying to teach people to use that admission of lived experience, acknowledgement of bias and privilege, and awareness of structural oppression as shared language and shared tools to make deeper, more empathetic connections, more compassionate connections, and then make more equitable decisions. So that's really what we do. So we've designed this, you know, a number of different workshops which are effectively trained. products, highly immersive, highly interactive, trying to do this work of rewiring your neurons so that you can show up in a space with your teammates and optimize for inclusion, not optimize for speed, not optimize for just getting through it, not optimize for getting the answers on the page, optimize for, you know, getting that balance of voices and, and making people feel really supported and like they belong. So that's pretty much our bread and butter. That's how we make all of our money. Everything for our community is free. Following the events of Black Lives Matter in 2020, we did launch a paid membership. And that was just amazing because, you know, those were some of the most incredibly transformative, emotionally traumatic weeks of my whole, whole life. I'll never, ever, ever forget how I felt in that time. But the hope that came into my life from people just saying I want to do more I want to do more I want to do more all types of people all around the world and that's really what our membership was all about we said we, we've we got the playbook we've got the resources we've got suggestions for lunch and learns activities you want to know more about Islamophobia in the workplace you want to know more about the gender pay gap what, what do you want to know about what do you want to know about what do you want to fix and uh, now we've got this amazing members hub uh, so people are paying like $15 a month or $150 a year I have like whole companies buying it whole teams buying it just to access all of these resources and also to access the workshops. So, we're bringing people into the space and, and holding these conversations so that they can go and have brave conversations in their teams. It's been really, really fun. It's actually been super, super life, life affirming too, because I've been honestly overjoyed by how many people show up to do the work and how many different types of people show up to do the work from venture capitalists to CTOs to recruiters. You know, we're, we're, we're still quite small. I'd say we're about 200 members, but we're like less than a year into this journey, you know, and I just anticipate that we've only just begun and we're only going to get bigger. And imagine how different the tech industry would be if in every company was at least one person willing to challenge the status quo. And willing to say, hey, 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 we're optimizing for speed when we should be optimizing for belonging. Let's try harder. You know, like, oh, my God, the rapid transformation is just makes me excited.
2: I just was wondering, do you think momentum's still there? Do you think since so much of the last year was
0: performative?
2: And I'm going to ask you to answer that
0: first and then I'll give you my take. What do you think?
2: I mean, I really worry we haven't learned that much. I feel like even my own momentum has slowed down because there are always excuses to slow down in your anti-racism and your activism and your own personal journey and things you can do, because I have a kid, I have a plethora, I have an unlimited excuse, you know, but yeah, it just feels like the same shit keeps happening. I, I worry that I don't want to diminish your work. And I think you clearly have the momentum and are keep going and that's great. But I just wonder when we suddenly saw we went from black like blank Instagram profile photos and now we did yellow which was insanely even more racist if possible in supporting of Asians in America that are going through obvious violence that may have been brought on by the previous president um but just things like that make me think we're so much performative, but it's not just performative in that area. Like we're about to hit pride months. So we're going to have pride washing soon. And there's so much performative, but I guess the one difference is I'm hoping that the tech community is rallying around. I don't see the difference that necessarily people's jobs are safer. And I think with Dr. gabriel at Google, it's a great example, but I do see that there, a larger, louder voice in the tech community is like, fuck this. We're not dealing with this anymore. If you if you need to quit your job because you are unsafe, we will name and shame if you want to, but we will find you another job. That's where I'm seeing, I'm seeing louder voices that are taking on the motion, but overall, I just don't know if momentum's still there or not. And granted, we're in a fucking pandemic, which we have to acknowledge there's a collective trauma, but that collective trauma is affecting other people more than certain demographics, more than others. But- I just wonder, is the momentum still there? I'm not sure, honestly. So the momentum,
0: if we were to have a little old graph, uh, let's geek out about it, and measure pace of momentum at point that hashtag Black Lives Matter is trending across a macro global level and say, are we still there? Well, no, because I can go on Instagram right now and type in hashtag BLM, hashtag Black Lives Matter and compare the number of posts using that hashtag now to, you know, 11 months ago or whatever it was and see that that's not the case. But is that the valuable question? Is that really what we want to ask like are we asking whether we have the same amount of momentum as we did right after the murder of george floyd and brianna taylor or are we asking are we still on a path towards lasting change and that to me is a far more interesting question and my answer to that is actually yes i'm optimistic and one of the reasons i'm optimistic is because if i look at history and i see things like civil rights movement unfolding suffragette movement unfolding i realize that it took a lot longer than one or even two years for people to really start to see the impact of sacrifices, bravery, and action. So by that logic, you know, the best indicator of the future is always the past. We are incapable of assessing change in this current time point And in this current timeline, we're going to have to keep looking longer and longer to see what's happening. And unfortunately, that's just like a limitation of like human rationale and human reasoning. I, I also think it's really important to remember that like when a curtain falls, you can't really put it back up. You can shift the narrative and you can have another headline dominating. But those videos of George Floyd are still out there. And those Instagram posts are still out there. And those stories don't die. They might get muted. Someone might turn down the volume, but you can't unsee what you've seen and you can't unhear what you've heard. And the people that really care and really committed are as active now as they were last year, as they were five years ago. Trust me, because I'm one of those people. Okay. I've been doing the work long before that hashtag started. I'll be doing it long after it starts trending. And so will everyone else. Timnit Gebru is no longer at Google. Her work doesn't stop. She's still very much active on social media and some genius company CEO is going to offer her a big fat check to come and do that work for her. I would love to have her at Brownwatch. Um, we probably can't afford her, uh, maybe, but, um, you know, zoom out anytime you feel you're losing hope, zoom out, like zoom out and, and look at the past and look how far we've come. That's what I do to keep hope alive. You know? Yeah.
2: What are the metrics we should be looking for as a tech community? for that
0: change. I think it's really important to like think about the role that the media plays in in setting the agenda of what we talk about and what we discuss. How many positive stories about women and other underrepresented individuals are trending and how can we drive that to increase? How many women founders are raising funding, IPOing? Hey, Whitney Wolfe heard rang the bell at the stock market on the day of her IPO with her little baby boy on her hip. Has anyone ever done that before? Like progress is happening, changes are happening. Uh, more and more tech companies are hiring women to boards, hiring women into the C suite, women of color are included hopefully with the pandemic and the fact that we've proven we can all work remotely this is going to be a huge thing for the disabled community um and anyone else that has special needs that just means you know they don't really want to come in or they can't come in they can't be as productive when they come in we need to all do the work of being allies right now and i don't mean like just saying it we need to like have the conversation we need to challenge the system we need to challenge the status quo it's up to each of us to make sure that the learnings of the last year don't go to waste. We, we, we can't just always be pointing the finger at who isn't doing the work. That's, that's actually, in my opinion, wasting energy. I put my energy into doing the work not worrying about who isn't doing it.
2: And I think an interesting metric I learned uh, quite a few years ago now, um, can't remember his name. He's a journalist for the Atlantic. So he doesn't actually work in tech, but he had responded to something. I said, how do you get more women? How do you get more underrepresented minorities as interviewees, as people you are featuring? And he said he started counting metrics And he had like, I believe his metric, this was five, six years ago now, but was 1.6 for every man. He asked for an interview. He had to ask for 1.6 women. So it was on the the tech storytellers, I guess, more on the journalism side and the marketing side. Are you measuring who you're interviewing? Are you measuring as individuals, even how many people you're reaching out to? Because it is harder, even as I run events extraordinary difference in who responds to a call for speakers and how many times like men are way more likely to respond with multiple responses and women are more likely to respond to a partner often a partner talk often with another man with a man and for shorter times so you can't just look at your overall trends you have to look and make that effort so I think metrics is really interesting and I wonder how many of us are actually including myself I think set these goals, but then I don't actually measure them, which is a whole other marketing problem for me as a marketer. But in general, I think, yeah, even as individuals, we can set goals. And I guess people in tech, uh, what goals like that's something even engineering teams have to look at and everything.
1: So you have to go in a minute. uh, But just really quickly, uh, I just wanted to kind of ask if you have anything you want to promote. So I know you've got a book, if you could sort of really quickly give that a shout out and explain what that's all about. There
0: are so many young people. I mean, like folks who are probably in their late teens, early to mid twenties, trying to get a job right now, trying to get a well-paid full-time job that, really aligns with their values and their motivations and goals. That is why I wrote my book. You know, it's full of actionable advice to help women break into startups and break into tech, but anyone can read it and apply those lessons literally to any industry. So it's called Dream Big, Hustle Hard, The Millennial Woman's Guide to Success in Tech. It's literally 99 cents on Kindle or 77p if you're in the UK. Um, You can also buy a a paperback copy, but uh you know it's five star rated which i'm really proud of uh i think that means it's working i think that means it's helping people um so check it out and please also check out my podcast like if you've enjoyed listening to my voice and you align with the, the my views or or you want to hear my co-host challenge my views check out techish we're a weekly show that's all about the latest news at the forefront of tech and pop culture
1: awesome and and where can people find you on twitter as well
0: yes The glories of having a made-up, unique name at Abadesi on all social platforms. I'm always getting in there first. You name it. Dispo app, boom, (laughs) Abadesi. So yeah, you can find me Abadesi anywhere
1: awesome okay so i know you've got a meeting three minutes Ooh. ago so we'll we'll let you go if, but thank you thank so you. much for thank joining you. us
0: i'll just share um, my little like press kit link oh
1: awesome yeah that'd be great
0: so that you can take any images you need but yeah oh, thanks for having me on the show keep in touch
1: so that's pretty much all we've got time for this week thanks so much to Abadesi for joining us we really enjoyed the conversation we learned a lot we were challenged uh, but we should also say sorry for making her a little bit late for a meeting and we hope her colleagues don't mind too much but yeah thank you for listening as well to this podcast remember to follow us on twitter we are at underscore talk about tech and for earlier episodes remember to visit our website which is talkabouttechpodcast.com you'll also find links to other streaming platforms so apple podcast spotify where you'll be able to subscribe rate us give us a review we always like nice comments so those are always appreciated um but yeah until next time goodbye from me and goodbye from jennifer uh we'll be back next week with another great guest so thanks for listening goodbye